Grant to us, Lord, we pray, the Spirit to think and do always those things that are right, that we who cannot exist without you may by you be enabled to live according to your will. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Have you, uh, have you ever run across something that shocks your system? And you, so much so that you just can't get over it. Now, you, you were there, you witnessed it, you know what you saw, you know what the truth is, but it's so different from what your expectation was, from what you knew to be right, this thing just baffles your mind. Well, I think that's what, in, these, in this previous section, which uh, Chad Ridgway preached last week for us, um, did a, uh, just a fine job, and it is posted if you would like to listen to that. But in this previous section where there's the uh, conversion of Levi, who is also known as Matthew, and then there's a party going on. And I think that that concept of, of being um, kind of flabbergasted and not knowing how to interpret what you have seen is, would be a way to describe what the Pharisees experienced in understanding and seeing this party that was going on. They, uh, they, didn't, they didn't know what to think of uh, Levi, the tax collector, the sinner, throwing a party for his friends who were sinners and Jesus, and then Jesus attending. This seemed so strange to them. And they didn't know how to interpret. Um, so they, in that previous section, they questioned uh, Jesus. They, they questioned his integrity by asking about, uh, they asked the disciples then about him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors. And Jesus responded and said, those who are well have no need of a physician, and, and then he said, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. But they didn't know how to interpret his answer. And so they're continually, or continuing in their uh, baffled state of mind. And they seem to be confused over this joy that salvation brings. The new way of relating to God through Christ brings continual joy. And in this section, Jesus illustrates the joy of the gospel as the new covenant is superior to the old. So the first thing we're going to see is, is relating to God through obedience. So this is a, a uh, kind of the normal, it's the default for the Old Testament uh, prophets and so on, but it would also then been the up to this point, this is still the default, but where this really hits home is this is our default still, where we believe if we were more obedient, that God's going to love us more. So their problem, we're, we're talking about, we're going to talk about the Pharisees, but their problem is our problem. And when you think you have no problem, I'm here to tell you, you have a problem. And it's the same as the Pharisees. So it, look with me in uh, 33. It said, And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. So Matthew's and Mark's Gospels, they tell of John's disciples being present at this stage. So there's the, this is not something that's being reported while John's disciples are not there. 
One, one of those writers says that it's John's disciples who asked this question, and another one says the people ask. So I don't know really who's asking specifically this question, but the question is comparing the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees with those of Jesus. And they, are, uh, they, they had been fasting, and it seemed like the very reasonable thing to do. John was an ascetic. He, he, was, he was the last of the Old Testament prophets, and he would remove himself from society and kind of lived a barren lifestyle in order to um, not be tainted by the uh, world. And, um, and his message was calling people to repentance and mourning. So that, that's, the, that's the default. That's how John's running and then it's no wonder then that his disciples would follow his preaching and, and that he's modeling and they would live their Christian life in that same, or, or they would live their life in that same way. Uh, fasting was a normal part of the Old, old Covenant uh, practices, although it was only explicitly commanded once in the whole Old Testament. The Pharisees implemented fasting for people on Mondays and Thursdays. They would fast and mourn, and they bewailed their flesh. It was a sacrifice offered to God in order to get God's favor. It was important to look very mournful and sad as possible. Some would would whiten their faces so that they looked even more emaciated from their fasting. They would refuse to wash and their clothes would be disheveled. And so they would even more look the part. I can, uh, you've, you've heard those stories about you know, the preacher that he dresses up like the homeless person and sits out to see if anybody's going to pay attention to him. That was sort of what crossed my mind is in, in order to put, the worse you could look, the better off you are. So for them, in order to relate to God, and have that relationship with God, it kind of boiled down to not doing those things that you wanted to do and doing the things that you don't want to do. And isn't that really how a lot of people who we might run into who, um, who may or may not even call themselves Christians, isn't that how they would think of the Christian faith? If they see you as a religious person, a lot of times I think people see the faith as something very, I think that kind of describes it. Well, no, I don't want to, I really don't want to come yet because I enjoy what I'm doing. And I understand if I come, I don't get to do what I want to do, and I have to do those things I don't want to do. So I think, I think this, I don't think that um, this way of relating to God ended with the Pharisees. I think it's still alive and well today. But, of course, on the Pharisees, they, they're wanting to please God. So it's not, it's not that they're staying away because they don't want to. They, they want to please God. Um, some people think that, uh, that the church is no place for laughter. It's, not, it's, it's a place that's got to be solemn. It's, it's very, uh, very somber, very serious. And that's, that's what religion is all about. And especially if you think, if you think that... In order to relate to God, we've got to quit doing the things we want to do and uh, do those things we don't. 
then no wonder one might think this. Uh, Irma Bombeck, a comedian and, and newspaper columnist from the 60s through the 90s, she said she saw a young girl in a church service and she was turned around waving and smiling uh, at those behind her. And the mother leaned over to her and whispered, you stop that smiling, you're in church. <laughs> and, and then gave her a smack and then she sat down and she said, that's better. Well, I... That, that's not, that, that strikes me funny because it could be so true. I, at this very hour, that could be true with many people. Um, she, she then said that uh, some people come to church looking like they have just read the will of their rich aunt only to learn that she left everything she had to her pet hamster. <clears throat> and that, that concept that you've got to be very solemn and very stoic, I think, is, is, uh, is prevalent still today. These are, these are those people that Steve Brown calls those uptight Christians. And, and, and Steve Brown hammers on uptight Christians uh, a lot. And, then, and he talks in very plain language and, and tries to get people to understand what living in grace is all about. He does say that these people who are uptight Christians who are worried about like keeping all the rules, keeping the law, and that's kind of what, how they're relating to God, they do that because they're wanting to please God. And, and I, I'm in agreement with that. I understand that. But the problem there is we don't really understand God's pleasure. We, we think we do, and therefore we're going to pattern our lives according to the law, so that he is pleased with us. This problem is really, what's at the root of it, is the difference between the old covenant and that way of relating to God versus the new covenant. So we have the old covenant of law, and in the new covenant, it's this covenant of grace or this covenant of the gospel and our understanding of grace is very difficult to grasp. And I think that's why we have a lot of um, uptight Christians, because they're relating still to that law covenant and making that relationship with God based on performance. Now, to talk to anybody, and, and you can pick these people out pretty quick, and you can find them, but if you were to talk with them and ask them, the truths of the gospel, or if they thought that their works saved them, of course their answer would be no, because they know the right answers. We, remember their problem is our problem. We know the right answers. It's just that if we go very far along, we're going to believe we kind of deserve this grace. And, it's, and then we can look at others and say maybe they don't. And and we compare if we start comparing ourselves to others, then you know our, our it's a train wreck. But we fail to understand that we have already been accepted by God, and again we don't understand what it is that gives God pleasure. Romans four twenty two through twenty five says that is why his faith, meaning the faith of this is Paul writing to the Romans, and he says uh, about um, Abraham. He says, this is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. 
It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That's Paul writing to the Romans using the justification of Abraham and then understanding that what was said about him is said about those who believe here in the new covenant. That it's accounted to us as righteousness. If you believe, so Abraham exercised faith and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And that's that alien righteousness. So us in the new covenant, once we believe, we, and, and we would never believe, we would never come had the Lord not drawn us. Left to our own devices, we would continue in our sin and ignoring him. He changes our hearts. We look for him. We run to him. And then he has counted us righteous. The reality is you are already accepted by God. And you are counted righteous in the here and now. So this old way to relate to God through obedience has passed. And what we see next is joy in his presence. So in verse 34 it says, And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Well, so Jesus is starting to talk here about marriage. And and, and what he has said there would have had a great impact on Jewish hearers. Because a newly married Jewish couple, they didn't, they didn't run off and go to a honeymoon as we understand things and as we're used to. But they would stay home and then there was this like week long open house. And the, the guests of the uh, bride and groom would come and, and go and come and go. And it was like this week long party and the bride and groom were treated as royalty and, and, and actually sometimes wore crowns. And so they're attended by all their friends and family. There was even a, um, there was even a law passed or written by the uh, Jewish elders that said that these attendants would, were exempt from any religious observance that may hinder their joy. I just find that very interesting. So this time is for celebration, and they took that celebration very serious. Um, I think, I, think, I think a lot of times um, I would be critical of all the things that maybe people decide to celebrate and then the way our um, lives are turned by whatever Hallmark says is the next holiday kind of thing, and that's how the economy runs. It, to, I've, I was actually in a store this week, and of course I was in, mul- I was in multiple stores for some reason. Um, I can go weeks without being in kind of those typical stores. I was in a store, and there, Halloween is up. I was like, really? Is it really trick-or-treat season already? Well, you know, we've, we've, uh, what, else are you, what else are you going to peddle at this time of year? So you just look forward and push people to thinking of the next thing to celebrate, which, of course, is it's trick-or-treat and, and all those good things there. And, and Halloween is like, I think, um, I forget that stat specifically, but I think it's the second largest uh, holiday celebrated. Is it number two? And you're like, really? Um, 
And of course, if it wasn't for spending money for candy for those thousand kids that are going to come to our door, I think I could get by without spending anything for Halloween. And, and to understand that the, our American culture spends um, as much or so much money on it that it ranks number two right behind Christmas. You're like, this is crazy. But we're used to celebrating all kinds of things. I would be critical of, of some of the things that we decide to celebrate. Like, And our upcoming, uh, our next holiday is Labor Day. I don't know who celebrates the fact that we have work by taking a day off work. Um, I find that to be just strange. And, and we needed something to end the, the uh, you know, you get the Memorial Day that marks the beginning of summer. So you have to have something that ends the, uh, and marks the end of summer. Um, but as critical as I am on what we celebrate, the Jewish custom, when it came time to do the wedding, they were intended for a huge feast. When we, when we were visiting in Rwanda um, and we met, Ephraim had the uh, equivalent of the mayor. I don't know what her ti- I can't remember what her title was. But she came to our, the uh, guest house at the church and visited with us because we were special people here in town. And so she, Ephraim had her and, and the chief of police come and uh, we visited with them. And she said, I wish we had a wedding going on while you were here. So I think in that culture, a wedding would be a big deal as well. And of course, in, in ours, sometimes they get extremely big. And, and that's where, again, I would I can be critical of lots of things. And as much time and energy as people spend on weddings, how much time did you spend on planning your marriage? And a lot of times there's lots more money and energy spent on the, on the wedding than the marriage. And therefore, I would be critical of some of those things. But they knew how to do it, knew how to throw a party, and they were um, intending to have a good time throughout the whole week. And so Jesus is saying, hey, I'm here. And, and, and as you're hearing that in, and understand with that cultural context of the wedding, he's saying, with the bridegroom here, who can mourn? This is not a time of mourning. This is the time, there, this is not the time of fasting. This is the time for joy. Well, Jesus' presence justified this feast that Levi had. His followers were part of that perpetual wedding party. In his presence, it was not only wrong, but likely impossible to mourn. If you, if you, if you think on that cultural context, who could be sad in the presence of, of this wedding party while the bridegroom is with them. But of course, he's, 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 taking it, he's taking it way up, and it's not here and down the street kind of a wedding. He's speaking that he is the bridegroom. He is here. And so I think it would actually be impossible to mourn at that time during his, during his presence. He was full of love and compassion, and his presence brought a sense of security. It brings a sense of security and well-being, regardless of what's going on externally or in, in the rest of your life. In his presence, there's stability, a sense of well-being. In, it, in his presence, um, there's holiness. And in that presence of holiness, our sin is exposed. But... Jesus has the power to forgive sins. So we can be in that holiness in his presence, but be comforted 
because we know he forgives sins, that he accepts us and receives us. So there is security there. He has, because Jesus simply has that power to forgive sins. And, and in this chapter 5, he's, you know, we've, we've learned about that. He's powerful. He's all-powerful. He speaks, and lepers are cleansed and healed. So in his presence brings safety and contentment. Jesus' disciples awake each day with joyful hope as participants in that continual feast. Jesus said the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And I believe he's referring to the days on the cross and in the grave and where he's removed from them and separated from them. He said he would, the bridegroom would be taken away, and that he was. And so there is this sense of mourning and fasting during that time. But of course, their mourning gave way to joy with the resurrection and ascension. I have a, uh, I didn't, I had a, a last-minute thought that I wanted to, if I can find some words. There's a song I was, I was we're going to do this song at some point, but uh, it's when death was arrested. And the words in one of the verses, it says, Ash was redeemed, only beauty remains. My orphan heart was given a name. My morning grew quiet, my feet rose to dance. When death was arrested and my life began. And I, I'm like, as I was, listening to the, I was listening to this this morning, as I was getting ready, and I was like, yeah, that's, that's that joy. That's the joy that comes when you, got, when you come to know Jesus and that satisfaction that is there, that um, recognition that his ways are not your ways, and we can th- be thankful for that. This joy we're speaking of, the mourning the, that you were in, that sorrow grows quiet, and your feet want to dance because you have joy in his presence, that joy in knowing him. So where is your hope? Does the presence of Jesus bring you joy even in the midst of your trials and your tribulations? Does the presence of Jesus in the midst of your trials bring you comfort and a sense of well-being? Have you preached the gospel to yourself this week so that you're reminded of your status in that perpetual feast? If that answer is no. If you failed this past week, you have, beauty is we're still here today and we have a week in front of us. So we need to preach the gospel to ourselves to be reminded on a, on a regular basis. I, I, I want to say daily, but really, if you're, if you're like me and then, and then if you're running into, if there are senses of trouble or, or I, 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 don't, I wouldn't say I have troubles in my I never have, think I have troubles in my life, but there sure are things that make me aggravated. So maybe it's in those times of aggravation for me that I need to be preaching the gospel to myself. So that, and those may come more than simply even once a day. They certainly come more than once a week. And, and when, I, when I, I get on my roll about this, and, and this is not my concept, you know, I don't think it was Martin Luther's concept, but he's... he's He's the one who uh, people refer to a lot. Um, but it's this understanding that the world t- 
tells us who we are. The world shapes and molds us. And once we have come to Christ, we're trying to break free from that. And our, and our, our cares of this world that, that you know, we're all, it's the already not yet. Our, our hearts are, and our souls are already seated with him in the heavenly places, but we are still left here to contend with this fallen world. And it wants to get to us in a multitude of ways. And so we need to preach the gospel to ourselves to be reminded of two things. That we're not that good. So when we, when we begin to think we deserve grace, it's when the preaching of the gospel to ourselves that says, there is nothing in you that deserves his love on you. So for some of us who might tend to the pride side, it brings us love. But then the continual preaching of the gospel to ourselves, for those on who are on the lowly side, it brings them up. And it says, but this is who you are in Christ. Because you have believed, you are counted righteous, just like Abraham was. And therefore, regardless of what's going on in your world, you have a heavenly home. You are part of this perpetual feast. You are part of this bridegroom's party who have been exempt from religious uh, activities, that religiosity, to have real relationship and come and go and join the party. So what Jesus is introducing then is a better way. So we've seen the old way we relate through obedience to, to uh, have a relationship with God. We see that um, Jesus is introducing this new way, and we come to him receiving this joy in his presence, and we're now, he, in, these, in the remaining verses, he's explaining this better way. And it's this, he's contrasting the old and the new, of the old covenant, the new covenant. In verse 36, he says, he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new. And the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into, the, into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. Well, the, the, the garment and the wineskins, um, and the, the wineskins... The wine um, would be like goat hides that are partially tanned, and so they're they're not brittle. They have some flexibility. You put you you would sew them up, and and they become your uh, vat for putting your wine in. Was the wine then new wine would expand as it ferments? Then it uh, there's elasticity in this wine skin, and so it's able to flex. Well, as time went by, if it were dried and you reused it. Then, as the new wine grows and turns to old and starts fermenting, then it's going to split and break that. The the thing with the uh, patches, one's going to shrink more than the other. It's going to rip it out. It's not going to match. Um, he doesn't explain a lot about that. But what but what he but what he's saying is, there's this old way. This old covenant didn't need a patch job. This old covenant didn't need to be recycled or reused. We're not looking for a uh, you know, a, a covenant flip here. We're, we're not looking for something to be improved in it. 
we're doing, we're going to do something that's totally new, is what he's saying. And so, he's, he's really doing something radically new. And when you, and when we see, like, him making his presence known, this becomes radically new, radically different. In the Old Testament, we, we know and we've talked about frequently that God makes his presence known through the, through the smoke, for, through the fire, through the pillar of smoke, through the cloud, then in the temple or the, the tabernacle, then the temple. And he makes his presence known in that. Um, and as, as the presence of the Lord is filling the temple, that's when Isaiah says, you know, uh, I, I have seen the glory of the Lord filling the temple. And, and, and God would meet with his people in the temple. And so that presence of God was mediated by the temple and the, the, sacrifice, the whole sacrificial system that went along with it. So it wasn't just the building, but it was all the other stuff that went along with it. And all of that stuff points to Jesus. And then Jesus comes and, and uh, John says, you know, behold, we have seen his glory and that he came to tabernacle among us. And John's amazed by that. We should be amazed by that. As distant as God had made his presence known prior to this coming of Jesus, this coming of the new covenant, in the coming of the new covenant, it becomes radically different, where God himself comes in the form of man to dwell among his people. And that's not all. As Jesus comes, he is referred to as the temple. He is the true temple. So all this... This temple imagery, the whole sacrificial system, those are like types, and Jesus is the antitype. So this type is fulfilled in Jesus. He's the true temple. And then in him, the fullness of God dwelled. But then he sends his spirit to reside in us. And Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the living God? And in 2 Corinthians six sixteen, he says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. As you hear me say frequently, that's the heart of the covenant. From, from the very beginning, God said, I will come and be among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That starts in Genesis, it ends in Revelation. It's that, it's that line of the covenant that run, the heart of the covenant that runs all throughout Scripture. Jesus is in all. He is the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha, the Omega. This is why knowing Christ is a perpetual celebration. With the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, there is a perpetual joy in that in this perpetual feast. It goes on and on and on. It never quits. We have great cause for joy. This is how people can be on their deathbed. They could, they, there are stories of people who are being executed because of their crimes. It's, you know, the, we come to Jesus, it doesn't remove the consequences of our sins. There are people who have been on their deathbeds or, at the, um, or, or being put to death because of their sins, but they witness and give strong witness to their faith in Christ and their assurance that they are His because He has forgiven them of their sin. And they are accepted. And so they enter into glory boldly. 
being freed from the bondage of sin and self-justification, living in this life of grace, we can be joyful because the bridegroom is with us. And we are not guests. We are not the guests that are able to come and go. We are the bridegroom. I mean, we, we are the bride. He is the bridegroom, and we are the bride. Therefore, life, all of life, is a celebration. The sinner realizes their old life is not adequate. There is something missing. And then they accept that Christ is that everything. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He fulfilled all the sacrificial system which pointed to Him. He is the true temple of God whose presence enables us to have a relationship and be, have that alienation from God removed. He is the bridegroom, the source of unending joy. So we rest our hopes on Him, believing that He died and rose again to make us His bride, and He will be with us forever and ever. This is our only hope. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray.